Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead, as we collectively recover our footing post-Mardi Gras, we thought today would be a good day to listen to two of our favorite conversations about recovered footage. Coming up, we'll hear about archival film from 1898 of the crew of Rex in New Orleans that was uncovered in 2022. First, though, let's talk about the 1997 documentary Testimony of a Big Chief. It tells the story of the late Allison Tootie Montana, who led the yellow Pocahontas black masking Indians for 50 years. This film was thought long lost following the chaos of Katrina. That is until producers stumbled across an old DVD copy of it. Director Will Horton talked with us about this rediscovery. He joins Tootie Montana's son, Daryl Montana. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. You for having us. So, Will, can we start with you? Tell me about the making of this film. How did you stumble across Tootie's story, and what did you learn when you were making the film? Um, growing up in New Orleans, you're surrounded by culture, um, uh, various cultures. Uh, Louisiana, what makes Louisiana great um, is a mixture and amalgamation of cultures um, that are blended um, to create subcultures. Um, and out of the black culture uh, is the black masking Mardi Gras Indians. Um, I'm a native New Orleanian, so I've, I've, I've seen the Mardi Gras, masking Mardi Gras Indians all of my life. Um, my initiation with the uh, black masking Mardi Gras Indians is, is out of fear <laughs> and terror. Uh, as a kid, um, if, if you saw the wild man or the, uh, the skull and bones on the street, you know, you instantly became a track star. Mm. Uh, as far as the 2D Montana documentary, um, I was I was approached by producers Keith Calhoun and Chandra McCormick. I was actually screening uh, a short film at the Treme Center um, in Treme, and they approached me um, uh, to uh, possibly direct the documentary. Um, I, I agreed to it, even though I'm a native New Orleanian. The black masking Indian, that's a sacred, um, a, a sacred ritual. That's a sacred organization, um, a sacred subculture. So everyone doesn't have access to the black masking Mardi Indian. So um, this was a chance for me to learn more about the subculture. I actually um, got a chance to sit at the Montana's um, kitchen and watch um, the Montana family create the wonderful art that we get to see on display during Mardi Gras and St. Joseph's Night. Daryl, what do you remember about making this film? Your dad was passing the throne to you at the time to take over as big chief. Can you describe that experience as you remember it? When you get a chance to see the film, you'll notice a part of it where um, my daddy kind of broke down. It was at the end of the practice. We were singing the Indian Raid. Um, that's our spiritual song. And um, it was like he he had gotten to a point where he couldn't he couldn't finish that piece. And I just came right there behind him, you know, and filled in my, my daddy. That was his 50th year. And I just celebrated my 50th year this year. So there are, of course, several Mardi Gras Indian tribes. Daryl, can you tell me about the history of the yellow Pocahontas black masking Indians. What are some of the traditions specific to this group? My daddy was a stickler for keeping it traditional. Um, one thing that we do, uh, different from any of the other tribes, 
is that um, practice. Practice is supposed to start the very first Sunday after it was uh, 12th night. The very first Sunday after that, that's when practice is supposed to start. And we are, we and I stick to that. I don't go to other practices uh, throughout the city because they have practices in the summertime. And I always say that that's like Christmas in July. Another thing is this. We also, we, we play tambourine. We don't play bass drums. And uh, I've seen times when, when my daddy uh, would hold his practice, uh, guys would come with uh, empty buckets and beating on buckets and, and bottles and stuff like that. Our tribe, basically, our drum is the tambourine. And we try to stick to the, the songs. Perfect example my daddy was one, he would tell a person if they was changing a song, he would say that you don't change that song. You want to, you want to change something, change that suit, you know? And that was, that was, that was how he was. He was a stickler for tradition. Will, what exactly happened that led to this film being lost for so many years? And can you tell us about that and also how it was rediscovered? What was your reaction when you found out it resurfaced? I can only attribute it to um, that great storm we had in New Orleans, <laughs> um, Katrina. So this is another Katrina story uh, that happened. But thankfully, um, we were able to recover one from the ashes of Katrina and present it to the crowd so the public will finally get to see um, what we've experienced. Hmm. We're speaking with Will Horton, film director and adjunct professor at Loyola University's Department of Digital Film Studies and Daryl Montana, chief of the Yellow Pocahontas Black Masking Indian Tribe. We're discussing a newly rediscovered documentary about Montana's father, Big Chief Tootie Montana, directed by Horton over 25 years ago. So, Will, what are you hoping your students and the general public will learn, will take away from this film? What I'm hoping is that um, I'm at a university that's in the heart of the city um, on the streetcar line, that this would bring a, a deeper connection um, between the academic world and the the, the folk artists and the Louisiana subculture um, in New Orleans. I'm, I'm hoping that um, what I'm doing is creating a curriculum. I also teach a documentary course. So this film would become part of uh, the documentary curriculum um, at Loyola. And this is pretty much phase one of it. And I'm hoping that students would use this film as a resource and also go out and explore other tribes so that they will learn more about the culture. Daryl, I hear it's been about 18 years since your father passed away. How do you think his memory is preserved in this film? What do you think he would want these students to know about his life? What, what, what stands out to me is that my daddy was a stickler for tradition. You know, you have to keep it. And, and I had a conversation with a, with a young man some time ago and, um, you know, because I'm considered now elder in it, right? And uh, some of the younger generation um, kind of, you know, they, they kind of feel like, well, you've had your, your head there, but, you know, you have to you have to listen to your elders. But I want to say this. King Tut exhibit was at the New Orleans Museum of Art. It was there for, um, for a year, no, six months. And my, my father's exhibit was there for six weeks. And what was amazing to me was that um, the, visit, the visitation uh, attendance was only about maybe 300 
visitor short of, of of King Tut exhibit, which was six months. So it, it kind of it kind of taught us it was that uh, yes, the community does want to find out and get involved into the tradition because at one time it was a secret. Um, if you was not family or very very close friend, you didn't get a chance to witness any of just uh, how it came together. And um, I truly believe that um, having doing having this this film scene is that it will it will kind of spark um, a conversation about because um, at one time we didn't pass it on. And I have to give credit to a, a, a personal friend of mine who's deceased now, John Scott. He's in fact he's in the documentary. Um, during my daddy's era, they really wasn't passing it on. Um, but John Scott taught me um, the importance of passing it on because if if I had not passed it on, or we would all pass it on, then it dies. My daddy was was a stickler for wanting to make sure that this tradition continues, and hopefully we're doing a great job. Yeah. Daryl Montana is chief of the Yellow Pocahontas Black Masking Indian Tribe, and Will Horton is a film director and adjunct professor at Loyola University's College of Music and Media. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. We're not done with Mardi Gras Indians. In a collaboration between WWNO's Thomas Walsh and StoryCorps, we want to bring you this 2015 conversation between two Mardi Gras Indians, Litdell Queen Bee Bannister and Mary Jones, who discuss sewing personal pride into each stitch of their costumes. When you meet another Indian on the street, they will challenge you just like anything. they will walk up to you and oh I'm pretty this and you not this that and the other sometimes even cursing you know they can challenge you and you can challenge them back which I do they can do this as long as you don't want to give them the peace signal and pass them up but they're only supposed to stay arm length in front of you they're not supposed to touch you because if they're challenging you for what you got on and what you're doing and they touch you, that really is a fight. Everybody wants to be peaceful. I'm telling you like it is. If they touch you, that's a fight unless somebody stop it. It's time to put down your hat, to put down whatever you want to do, take your <laughs> crown off and get ready because it's, <laughs> it's, it's on and I don't want to mess up my suit. So half the time I'll be trying to take my suit off or you won't mess it up because I got to wear it again. <laughs> So I got to wait for St. Joe tonight, Super Sunday, Jazz Fest, so I'll be trying <laughs> go ahead and fight. We're going to fight, but let me get my suit off first because I don't want to mess up my suit. This costs too much money, and I got to repair it for when I got to do something else with it because we got to have it for the rest of the year. Oh, oh we make a new suit every year, so I got to have this suit for a couple more days, and that's what's be on your mind. Oh, yeah, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to challenge but just don't trash my suit. We <laughs> so that's why most of the time I say because I know me peaceful. Yeah, I try to be peaceful. peaceful with people because I hate to be trying to get out my suit and fight. 
But most of the time, I don't have time. You don't have time, got this suit because the suit is heavy. And I mean, you have on, you, you might have a zip in the back and you ain't very good. So you, then you just got to go ahead and fight. Then my suit will get messed up. <laughs> That's why I try to be peaceful. <laughs> and my teacher also say that too. Mary, don't worry about it. Let me talk. Go on by. Pass on by. Pass on by. Don't worry about that. Come on, let's go. I ain't got time. Because see, when my chief come out, he come out for a little while, and he'd like to go back to his house and cook for all the people that come from out of town, that come to see him. And he cook all kind of food, wild animals. And he just like to go back to his house and enjoy himself because he'd be tired. We'd be up all night sewing, putting the suit together. And that's what he like to do. He like to be out for no more than... 30 minutes to an hour, or less than that. He ready to go back home and take off that soup, eat and drink, and be happy. But when you hit that streak, you don't be happy because you got to fight sometimes. So that's why we ready to get back home and eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if this is supposed to go on it. If you're standing up there acting crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, they will start saying, if you're not going to roll, get the hell on that's out the way. way. <laughs> That's the way we play. That was a StoryCorps interview between two Mardi Gras Indians, Litdell Queen Bee Bannister and Mary Jones. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. In 2022, the Library of Congress announced that the short film titled Mardi Gras Carnival has been added to the National Film Registry. The film, which captures about two minutes of the crew of wrecks rolling through New Orleans in 1898, was the oldest inductee that year. But this film was actually long thought to be lost. That was until Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, an audiovisual researcher and archivist for the Smithsonian Archives of American Art, tracked it down earlier that year in a trail that led her all the way to Europe. And she joins us to share more about this film, the piece of history it exposes, and the unlikely journey to recovering it. Mackenzie, thanks for being here. Of course. So, Mackenzie, this film was lost. It was thought to be lost for a long time, but there were still rumors swirling around about its existence. So it may not have been a complete surprise that it was found, and you had a clue that it existed or might have existed somewhere. How did you first get involved in this project, and how were you able to track it down? And why did you know that this is film that might exist? Sure. Um, so Will French, who is the historian of the Rex crew, he called me and said, hey, I wondered if you could help me. And he said, I'm looking for a bunch of films of New Orleans, specifically Rex, Mardi Gras, but we don't know if they exist or not. We've had other people try and they've been unable to find them. And there's a reason for that. I mean, statistically, they think 80 to 90 percent of the silent era is lost. It kind of depends on who you ask. A lot of people didn't think the films were important, so they didn't keep them. What's interesting is that they've created this database, and the database is based on inventory roles of different companies and the films that they produced. And so we know that these films have been made, but we have no idea if they're still around. And that's kind of how he was able to say, I think that these are the titles and these are the films that we're looking for. And granted, not all of the titles are very descriptive, as you can imagine. So you kind of take a shot in the dark. Things are pretty generic when they would name them. So these films were listed out, and there was a few companies that did them. Um, this one was done by the American Mutoscope, which is an early film production company. So I found the list, and they happen to have one at the Eye Museum in the Netherlands. So if you look on the production information, there should be two rolls of film. 
and under the eye museum it just said the film title so i had no idea if it was one reel two reels what to do so i reached out and asked them about it and they said that they need to digitize it but they'd get back to me when it was done and that's when i saw it and thought oh my god i know what this is this has to be what they're looking for this is rex so somebody was recording this film in new orleans in 1898 why were they there why were they recording this what was the reason what was the intended audience so uh, around the time that film came out, this is pretty early on, 1898, they made actuality films. And actuality films were done in New York and all across the United States of what places looked like. And it really was just the idea of a moving image. They didn't really care so much about story, which is why you also have just footage of New York City or San Francisco before the earthquake, things like that. And those were the films that you would see either being projected or you would see them in the Nickelodeons. And this was one of them. So the reason they're recording is, you know, people just liked watching actualities from somewhere else in the world because it's it's a moving image. It's a, it's a novel thing. Yeah, and not everybody got to travel. So you might hear of what New Orleans is doing with Mardi Gras and you might hear that, it's, you know, things are going on on the coast. And um, I remember reading about the World's Fair that was pretty early on and they had footage of different factories from the big city. So people in the rural era may not have been able to see what factories looked like at the time. So that was a, a big reason why they had actualities, which is really cool. Um, people kind of overlook that now. So this hunt for this film brought you to Amsterdam. Why was the film there? And how were you able to get this footage back to the U.S.? So our best guess is that films were distributed all over to watch, but no studio really asked for them back. So this would end up in people's garages or attics or backyard, like kind of wherever they had them, and then ended up in archives. People would have them and keep them and go, hey, I'll donate these. And it happened that one of the American Mutoscope films ended up in the Netherlands. So they just digitized it for me. Um, it's a 1989 film, which means that it's probably on nitrate, and the nitrate is highly flammable. So at no point would I have even asked for it. <laughs> Um, but they were able to digitize it, and I'm guessing they have special equipment for that because there's very few places that can do it. Hmm. So films like this, they're you know temperamental. When archivists keep them, they're kept in these climate-controlled conditions to keep them from breaking down. And you said some of these are found in your garages and attics. What condition was this film in when it was found, and was there a restoration effort? Were you were you lucky? I don't know a whole lot about the film itself, but by looking at the footage, it is well-maintained. You don't see very many scratches, and it doesn't seem to be that there's a lot of warping involved either. We're speaking with Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, audiovisual researcher and archivist with the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. We're speaking about some very old footage of the Crew of Rex parade rolling through New Orleans in 1898, footage that was recently uncovered and inducted into the National Film Registry. So tell us a little bit more about the film itself. What are we seeing when we watch it? Who's in it? What's going on? Yeah, so this was the Rex Parade, and it's going down... Oh, God, I don't remember the street right now. So I understand the camera that was filming was placed at Gallier Hall and was looking down St. Charles Avenue toward Poydras Street. I ended up actually staying over there in a hotel. Um, it's a little different now, but we were able to figure out which one it was. What's interesting about this footage is you'll notice that Mardi Gras changed. 
there's no beads being thrown. There's no people screaming. There's no, nothing being thrown. And what's another interesting thing to think about is there's no safety really involved. Uh, there's no handrails. There's nothing really holding you on. You're just kind of standing on top of these floats. To me, it's a little scary. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> want to do that. But that's another thing that's really fascinating. And you're also not seeing any police presence holding people back. Everybody is standing where they're supposed to be and the floats are coming down. There's no barricades like there is nowadays. Um, but the big thing that's happening in this footage that's really neat is the Bouffe Gras. So Bouffe Gras is a bull that's always been part of the Rex crew. It's a, a live bull that was paraded around medieval France. Then at one point it was killed and eaten before Lent. And this is a tradition that was then integrated into the Mardi Gras parade. And a live bull used to stand on a float that would go down the street. Nowadays it's paper mache. And that ended in 1901 having a live bull. So this is a live bull, and that's a really incredible footage to see. It's the only footage like that in the world. The Bouffe Gras, so this is a live bull um, on a float going down the street in New Orleans. Yes, <laughs> and I have no idea how they got it up there. <laughs> <laughs> or how it got back down. Oh, God, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that stands out here, of course, this crowd sounds very well behaved. Nobody has to keep them back off the street. They're not mobbing the floats or anything. No safety whatsoever compared to what we're used to now. The other thing, nobody's throwing anything. We think of throws as a staple of Mardi Gras parades, but apparently it wasn't in 1898. Mackenzie, I'm wondering, what were your biggest takeaways from watching this film? We saw a quote from Will French. He said, watching the film is like a hunt for 100 little Easter eggs because each viewing reveals something new. Do you get that feeling from it? Were there any little Easter eggs that you discovered viewing this footage over and over again? Yeah, I guess because I've done Mardi Gras with my family, and I don't think of it in the same way that I do in the footage, because it's just so different from today. But then my knowledge of film and film history and what we're looking at for I guess, historical presidents, it's not surprising that it's extremely different. Um, having gone back to New Orleans and I stood in the area where the float was coming down the street, I know that the buildings behind it have changed. And it's just really neat to see... I don't know how to explain it. Um, the change of America, in a way, and the change of Mardi Gras is just incredible to watch and to know the difference. We now have footage of something so old, and now you can experience this today and know how far we've come, not only in safety, but also in costumes and interaction. I feel like you're not really interacting so much here in the older footage, but nowadays it's a more interactive experience for Mardi Gras. This is film, you know, 100 20 some years ago, and it's bound to be some part of the history of New Orleans and Mardi Gras. Tell me, what's been the reaction about the discovery of this film? What have people said to you, and how has the city of New Orleans responded? So it's been a very positive response. Um, I've gotten emails from colleagues and friends who were all really excited that the footage was found. But really, the big hoorah of everything was that it was brought into the National Film Registry. It's an incredible honor. And to have footage of my home state be honored in such a way is an incredible gift. And I'm so glad that I was able to help. And you mentioned a little bit of your reaction to being in the exact same location this film was shot of, the same corner, the same scene, and seeing what had changed. I don't know if anything was the same. Can you tell me like what you noticed changed? So I know looking in the back of the footage, you'll see the balconies on the building. That's no longer there. 
it was a little bit more difficult to figure out where it was for a long time. And the parade route is different than it was then. So it no longer goes on the street anymore. We've been speaking with Mackenzie Roberts Beasley, an audiovisual researcher and archivist for the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. Mackenzie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. Our managing producer is Alana Shriver, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday, 12 noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.